The new CEO of Lyft gives his first podcast interview since taking the job. That's coming up right after this. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast, a show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. We have a great show for you today. David Risher, he's the CEO of Lyft. He's a few months into the job and he's here to tell us how it's going. Can't wait for this discussion. David, welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on. So let's zoom back to when you first took the job. I did, I did some reading this morning, try to figure out the clips of what the environment was like. This is straight from the AP story. You're smiling, so I think you know what's coming. This is what the AP says. The shakeup comes about a month after Lyft disclosed that it suffered a $588 million loss for the final three months of last year, more than doubling the same 2021 period, and provided a dismal outlook for 2023. That deepened a downturn in Lyft stock, which has pushed its shares below $10, a roughly 80% drop from their price at the end of 2019. Why did you take this job? <laughs> That's a great setup. I mean, look, uh, so much opportunity. <laughs> I mean, the, the article said it right, uh, you know, sort of in black and white. You know, this is a company that really pioneered rideshare. You know, back in the day, 15 years ago, rideshare meant either take a taxi, which wasn't a thing, uh, or, uh, you know, maybe jump in a black car. Um, and then Lyft really innovated around this peer-to-peer driving idea, the idea of a friend kind of coming you up and coming in and picking you up. And that's what really open this whole uh, market up. Uh, and, and millions, billions of people now have used it and love it, riders and drivers. Um, but the truth is, I think Lyft went through a bit of a tough time, you know, and, and it's sort of a tale as old as time. A company starts off and just is hitting on all cylinders and then gets thrown a couple curveballs, um, COVID being a pretty significant one, um, maybe makes a couple of decisions that in retrospect, you know, even the founders wouldn't have made if they'd known um, what was coming. Um, but anyway, and then at a certain point, you sort of get to the thing where you say, gosh, it's maybe time to take a, a fresh look at what's going on. And so, you know, ever since starting, you know, the idea of focusing really hard on what riders want and what drivers want and right. building a great business on top of that was just super appealing. What were some of those mistakes that the founders made that they wish they would have had back? You know, I think there were probably two that in retrospect, they might have um, done differently. I think one was around the beginning of COVID, when they did, and none of us knew what was going to happen, of course, we have to sort of put ourselves back in, in 2020 and remind ourselves that, you know, at the time it might've been a three month thing. It might've been a six month thing. Nobody knew, nobody knew, but they made the decision sort of to double down on kind of their existing business ride share. And then they had already started kind of an expansion in other transportation modalities. You know, they had a big idea of, of really being the world's best transportation network. And so they were, you know, doing some work with you know, public transportation, bikes, rental cars, and so on and so forth. And um, the problem with that is at a time when nobody wants to go anywhere, being long on transportation is tough. Yeah. Uh, so that was a, clearly a big decision. Um, again, you know, hard to know whether if, if COVID had ended in, in, in two weeks or two months, it, it, things would have been very different, but it didn't, of course. And um, uh, so that was one thing. And the second thing was, you know, as uh, COVID ended and, you know, things started to sort of normalize, the company was under a huge amount of pressure from its investors to start to turn uh, profit or to, or to sort of make real progress towards profitability. And the, the problem with that, there's nothing wrong with that in the long term. You have to be a profitable business in order to survive. But the problem that started to create internally was they had a lot of things going on because of the first thing I said. And so instead of... Um, sort of going into hyper-focus mode on that, they decided to do something else, which was raise prices a little bit, uh, maybe even cut driver pay a little bit, do some things around the edges that they thought were going to be fine. You know, sort of no one would notice or maybe the competitor would follow or whatever it is. Um, didn't really work out. Didn't really work out. We started to lose market share. And if you start to lose market share in a duopoly, in a two-person market, and they, and you're doing it in a way that's not very customer-friendly or you're doing it because you haven't been customer-friendly, 
gosh, things can start to unravel. And and you saw it play out. You saw it play out. So that was, I think both of those were, were decisions they would have made differently. Mm-hmm. I can tell you a little bit about why they didn't change them as fast as they might have and so forth. But at the end of the day, that was it. And so I decided to do something different. Yeah. And the founders, Logan um, and John, were, were beloved inside the company. And the industry looked at them fairly positively. I actually spent two New Year's uh, riding around with John uh, as he did his annual New Year's uh, Lyft driving experience. It was fun. It was it was great. And it was really an opportunity for me to come like spend a couple hours with him and really think about, you know, or speak with him about where this business was going. So I'm curious from your perspective, just from like a leadership standpoint, how do you come in and establish yourself as the guy, you know, mm-hmm. after those two leave? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, I mean, and the funny thing is, and this will sound trite, be yourself. You know, so I'm I'm sort of lucky. If I, if I look at my experience, you know, I got to be at Microsoft in the '90s um, at the time, a company that really was innovating around technology, Windows 3.0, and so on and so forth, really ushering in the graphical user interface. I was at Amazon in the late '90s, the 2000s, really focused on customers, and then I ran a nonprofit for a lot of years, really focused on figuring out how to do big things, get kids reading, but with limited resources. So I was lucky. I got to draw on all of those experiences. You know, how can you really, you know, focus on getting the technology right? How can you really focus on customers like a laser? And that's probably the single biggest thing. And then how can you do it with with limited resources? Um, And so, you know, that's just what I did. I will tell you that two other things. It wouldn't have worked if John and Logan hadn't been so incredibly gracious and, and really sort of thoughtful and introspective and generous with how they pass the baton. It's hard as a company that you founded to, 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 to pass the baton to somebody else and not, you know, feel like you sort of want to interfere or sometimes even you know, against your best intentions undercut. They did none of that. They did none of that. They were incredible, set the organization up for such success by being really gracious and thoughtful about how they transitioned it to me. So that's, that uh, yeah. helped a ton. Um, and then, you know, I happen to have a sort of, um, a lot of energy, you know, That's and, so, true. And, and that helps yep. too, because it gives people a sense of, gosh, you know, it, it's sort of a, a new, you know, kind of a bit of a new era. And, and it looks like this guy may, might be able to, to help us pull it off. That's right. So how do you get the job, by the way, you were on the board. Did you raise your hand for it? Or were you like the guy in the meetings at the board that spoke up and then the board was like, why don't you take over? How did that happen? <laughs> it was more like the second than the first, yeah. but no, here, so here's exactly what happened. At the end of last year, uh, Logan came to the board. And let them know that after 15 years of running the company and, and literally running a 24 by seven, you know, I mean, this is a company that, that operates around the clock. It's operationally intense and so forth. It, it tried to be put out of business by Uber a bunch of times. You know, anyway, all sorts of stuff over 15 years. He said, you know what? I'm about to turn 40 years old. It's time for me to start the next chapter of my life. Um, and so when they, when he said that, uh, and John kind of followed suit, he said, you know what? Kind of Logan and I are sort of joined on this one. It, it, it's time. So the board did what boards do. They hired a search firm. They, I think they talked to maybe about 100 different candidates, or at least screened maybe 100 different candidates for the job. I think they narrowed it down to a short list of 10 to 15. But then something interesting happened and very unexpected. Uh, I was literally taking a walk one afternoon in between meetings, and uh, my phone rang, and the board chair, Sean Agarwal, was on the line. And he said, David, I have an offer for you that I think that you might not be able to refuse. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, Sean, what do you, what do you, what? And, and honestly, at that point, I thought he was maybe going to try to convince me to join the audit committee or something like this, you know, some, something that nobody wanted <laughs> anyway. But um, he said, no, look, Logan, John, and I have been talking for the last couple of months as we've been interviewing people. And we've been sort of in the background, ranking these people against you and saying, who would we rather have run the company? And we'd rather you at least throw your hat in the ring um, than than just sort of limit us to to just the external candidates we've seen. And I said, you know, look, you know, I I said, of course, I'm very flattered. It's very kind, but no, it doesn't make any sense. You know, I've got a great life and I'm doing all these things, getting kids reading and so on and so forth. But, you know, one thing led to another, they were quite persistent, but also I kind of opened my mind to the idea. Uh, My wife and I talked about it and, and, you know, then one thing led to another. I had to compete for the job, of course. I had to put together a 100-day plan. I had to do all the things, but I got really excited pretty fast at the idea of building something really cool for customers using all the skills that I'd had. Yeah. So, okay. So we've talked a little bit about about your starting point, right? Yeah. So you come in, the company's really in a, in a rough spot. You have opportunity to build, opportunity to shape it in your way. You're clearly the, the, the choice that, you know, the company's leadership wanted to put in place. 
Now the question is, what do you do? So let's go back to that AP article, if you don't mind. So this is from, again, from, from the day that you were named uh, new CEO. While Uber's ridership has bounced back to pre-pandemic levels, Lyft hasn't yet found a way to get back on track, causing its losses to mount and investors to bail on its stock. Uber diversified its operations to include food delivery, a popular option during government lockdowns that kept people in the habit of opening the Uber app. So talk a little bit about like, all right, there's opportunity, but you're way behind here. And so what what did the economics of running this business look like? I mean, you talked a little bit about how there was a loss of riders and drivers, um, and you, of course, need to be profitable. So t- talk a little bit about, you know, from the business, the business of the business, the economics, like, what do you think about when you think about, you know, what what you're doing with Lyft and what you need to do with Lyft to get it on the right trajectory? Yeah. So a great question. Um, here's how I think about it. Lyft has, and this is just purely from a business perspective, right? Lyft and any rideshare company has a fixed cost base of X, whatever it might be. When I took on the, the, the job, let's call it a billion dollars in round numbers, a fixed cost. So that's just a chunk of money that it costs to, to, to keep the lights on at that time. So think about it this way. Every time you get in a car as a rider, you pay a fare. The driver gets a chunk of that. Our insurance companies and other people get pieces of that. And then we get to keep what's left over. Now, if you don't have enough riders, and let's just, and we're going to use completely illustrative numbers to be clear. Let's just say we make a buck a ride, just to, again, make the math easy. Well, that tells you you got to have a billion rides just to cover your costs, right? Sort of, that's, that's the arithmetic. Well, we, uh, so, so, so that tells you, in a sense, that lays out your plan right there <laughs> because you kind of have to do two things. You got to figure out how you're going to get your ride volume up and you got to figure out how you're going to get your costs down if you want to be profitable, which we do. So that's what we did. So we started getting ride volume up by doing some starting, frankly, fairly basic ways, you know, making sure that we're paying our drivers what they deserve so that they don't get annoyed at us, making sure we uh, charge our riders sort of in line with what Uber is charging them, at least as a starting point. You know, maybe we can go a little lower sometimes, maybe a little higher sometimes, but basically try to be in line, which allows you then to compete in other ways. We can talk about that, you know, after. But first step is just kind of match. And then on the cost side, you got to cut costs. You got to cut costs. Unless you think you're going to get to a billion rides, you know, the day after tomorrow, but that's going to take some time because that's a big number. So we cut costs. And, and you probably read those articles as well, $330 mm-hmm. million dollars of costs. Now that's hard to do because cutting costs, you know, in theory sounds like one thing, but in practice, what it really means is uh, laying people off. And so we had a layoff. It was painful as layoffs are. Um, I think we did as good a job as we can. And I'm pleased to say that many of the people, even people who are frustrated by the whole thing mm-hmm. now, you know, have new jobs and so forth and so on. So these things that kind of this kind of ugly side of capitalism, but Anyway, that's sort of what we did. And that was the sort of beginning. And then the third thing is we started to market ourselves a little bit. Again, come back to that in a second. But those were the sort of basic steps. Yeah. Let's talk about the layoff quickly. So you laid off, uh, I think reports are more than a thousand people. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I want to ask you, you're, you come in, this is one of the things that happens often when a new CEO comes in is they lay off. I mean, one of the examples we talk about often on the podcast is Elon Musk and, and Twitter. And it's a lot of people to cut. So how do you affect, how do you cut? I mean, how do you do a layoff effectively? You know, you're just really ramping up to learn the business. Can you, are you sh- like, how are you sure that this is like the right people even? I mean, and, and I also need to ask you, did you take inspiration from like the magnitude of, of cuts that Elon Musk made at Twitter? Because that's the sort of meme that everybody talks about is that he like freed companies up to cut people. So I'm curious, both of those sides of that questions. Yeah. Um, let me let me start from the end and work backwards. Okay. No, I didn't take any inspiration yeah. from Elon Musk. Okay. <laughs> I didn't. I think he I did a terrible good. job. Yeah. He did a terrible job. I mean, right. there are good, there there are better and worse ways to do layoffs. I think he figured out a way to do it worse than just about anyone else had ever done it before. So, not not particularly interested in following that lead. But I understand the sentiment of your question. The question is sort of, you know, did that sort of make it okay? No, it did. We needed to do it no matter what. We we just did. And and the answer to your first question, how do you know? You know, not by talking about the individual people, honestly. You know, because you start to say, okay, eyes on the prize. We've really got to focus on getting drivers what they need to be successful and riders thrilled every time they take a a lift. And so anything that doesn't fall pretty squarely in that category is uh, something that we have to look at and decide whether or not we can afford to continue to do. And so 
you know, you heard me talk in the earliest days about focusing on rideshare, focusing on rideshare, because again, we had a bunch of other things and, and you'll see, um, anyway, again, that's maybe for the future, but anyway, uh, so as you start to focus on one thing, you start to look with a new eye at some of the other things you're doing that aren't kind of on strategy. And I think to your point about, you know, new CEOs do this often, there's truth to that, but I think there's a reason. And it's not because new CEOs are, are, these are terrible people or, mm-hmm. you know, like to come in and, and do uh, awful things. It's because new CEOs have a, a particular advantage, which is that they can look at things unburdened by history. And so they, they're looking going forward, you know, what is the opportunity here? Not, you know, what did I think two years ago when I started this project or, you know, trying to unfall in love with something. Um, I'll tell you a quote, Satya Nadala, who's the CEO of Microsoft, um, sent me a very nice note when I took the job. And he, we were talking about uh, this and that. And he said, look, life, because I talked about how much I was learning. And he said, life is all about learning. Actually, I think he said leadership is all about learning and unlearning and learning. Hmm. And it's that second part, the unlearning that's so, so hard to do. And new CEOs have a bit of a pass on that. They don't have to be burdened by all the learnings of the past. I've got my own unlearning to do, but I don't have to unlearn stuff that, that, uh, that other people started. So I think that's kind of what happened. Okay. So now, now we can talk about profitability. I was just checking. It doesn't seem like Lyft has been profitable ever. There's, a, a, I think, a, an interesting meme in tech or there's some truth to it that like you have the big, you know, seven companies that are like really pranking as far as a business. And then we've really yet to figure out whether some of these others are businesses like a Lyft or an Uber or an Airbnb, the, the darlings of the previous era of tech, right? The in between, you know, the formation of the Facebooks and the Googles. And now many of them aren't profitable. People wonder like, you know, whether they, they actually, there was so much excitement around these businesses. And now it's like, your, your public companies now and still no profitability. So what do you think about that? And, and is there a real road to profitability for Lyft? Yes, there is. Okay. And, and the, the, the key though is, first of all, it is a scale business. And for the last couple of years, again, I don't want to blame everything on COVID, but it's been hard to continue on the path of scale at a time when no one wanted to to move around. So anyway, that's, that's a little bit of a side issue, but, you know, also quite, uh, quite important, very different dynamic than, for example, what, you know, Amazon has faced or Facebook has faced or, um, you know, others where the the pandemic arguably was, was a net positive. But anyway, even if I set uh, COVID aside, this is, it is an operationally complex business. I'll, I'll say that again. You know, you're talking about millions of riders, millions of drivers being matched, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you know, all over. Hard to get right. Point number one. Point number two, it's not a business that lends itself to high margins, right? Mm-hmm. So search does, right? For sure, you can see that. Retail doesn't particularly, I'm talking about Amazon, but Amazon was ruthless at the beginning, and I was part of that, at figuring out how to keep costs really low. And then they also made a very smart decision in the 2000s where they really focused on uh, Amazon Web Services and growing that as a, as a real driver of profitability, which also gave them some some cover and so on and so on. So when you look at some of the other businesses you talk about, they it's it's not that they're any less complex, but they have alongside that complexity a, in general a particularly high margin business that can really help them, you know, weather a bunch of storms and and and, and so forth and so on. We don't have that. We don't have that. And neither does Uber. You know, so so that makes the the challenge higher for us. But now the question becomes, well, how do you know it's going to be profitable? I mean, I can see the numbers internally. We can't talk about this now, but I, I right. certainly. But I can tell you that as ride volumes increase, as we continue to optimize our cost position, and in particular, in particular, as we really focus on our customers, we can figure out ways to to, to make more money. And, and the reason I say that last piece is because customers are willing to pay more over time if they have a service that provides them enormous value. We have a base service that provides people huge value every single day. And then we can build on top of that. And again, something you and I can talk about uh, a little bit more uh, later. But but that's in part you know one of the ways you, you you get to profitability is you move beyond just just getting the basics right, which is kind of where I would argue we are right now, and and really kind of get to that next stage. Yeah. So one of the ways that people were saying that these companies would get to profitability was that they were going to get 
to autonomous driving. I mean, people, when I speak to people about the Uber business, for instance, they always said, look, like this business doesn't work or the valuations don't work unless we get to autonomous driving. And with Lyft, it's not even, uh, you know, abstract things. So I'll tell you like what happened when I was speaking with John back in 2017, when I was there with him for New Year's. You know what? Let me just read a piece of the story and then we can go there. So this is from, from 2017. So at the start of 2016, autonomous vehicles were, were still abstract, much hyped, but little used in the real world. By the end of the year, autonomous driving became much more real when Uber self-driving cars hit the streets of Pittsburgh and San Francisco and the company's autonomous truck made its first delivery. I mean, wow, this is really like stepping in a time machine here. And here's, here's the line about Lyft. Lyft is getting in on the self-driving action too. This year, it plans to introduce autonomous driving cars along some fixed routes. I mean, 2017, it felt like I would be stunned if you told me we we're going to be sitting here in 2023 asking when is self-driving going to happen? <laughs> yeah. Here we are. What's going on? Yeah. yeah. So I think you're putting your finger on two things, actually. I think one is, um, you know, how, how, you know, we as human beings, we like to take a couple of data points and extrapolate out and see mm -hmm. patterns, you know, and sometimes so they don't work out thing, the way we sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think we everyone got a little ahead of themselves right. on, on self-drive. You've mentioned Elon Musk already. He's fairly famous for getting a little ahead of himself on that. <laughs> um, but look, I, I think, so two things. First of all, uh, self-driving cars will happen. And in in 2017, it was kind of science fiction. In 2023, it happens every day here in San Francisco. There is not a day where I don't see two or three in a 15-minute period roaming around you know, the city. Um, it's one city. It's not during rain. You know, it's you know, caveat, caveat, caveat. But, uh, but it's happening. And, and so, so that's the thing. Um, and, and I'll, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, I was in a lift myself a couple of nights ago. It's actually a couple of weeks ago, I guess at this point. And as my wife and I were coming home from dinner, a self-driving car drove by us. Actually, it was three of them, to be honest. They, they tend to kind of go in, in herds. Um, and my driver said, oh yeah, check that out. I said, yeah, I know they're everywhere. And he said, yeah, it's really interesting. You know, they're already better drivers than I am. And he was six years old. He said that I've got six year old eyes and they've got sensors that, you know, they just you know, built yesterday. So you know, it was so. So even even people who you might think might be you know skeptical about self driving cars or worried, even they're sort of saying, yeah, they're kind of part of the landscape now. The other part of your question, though, is is it needed to be profitable? No, absolutely not, absolutely not. And and I think even that suggests something that I just don't think is true. I don't think it, it's it will be a long, 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 long time before there are enough self driving cars on the road to be significant in most places. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's still R and D land. I mean, these cars cost hundreds of thousands of dollars per car, and and that's that's only recovering a small amount of the R and D that's gone in to building these. And let's not think that the R and D is done. In other words, it's not like you spend a bunch of money and then you just get to sell a bunch of cars and make the money back. No, you're going to continue to spend a bunch of money. So I think the idea that somehow self-driving cars are going to be like super cheap or something like that, you know, like okay, there's no driver, I get that, but there's a lot of other costs that that, that normal cars don't have. I think that's not. Uh, not super likely. And I think for the absolute foreseeable future, a hybrid model, in other words, some self-driving cars, but many cars driven by drivers, much more likely. Right. So, okay. So we're going to be dealing with the current economic situation and the current technology for a while. Yeah. You mentioned a few times that your business is really predicated on scale. Um, you've helped increase the market share of Lyft a little bit since you've taken over. You're up to around 30% now. Uh, Uber is still the vast majority. So I'm puzzled by the situation where it's going to take scale, uh, but you're, you know, a cl very clear number two in the market. So how does that, how do, how do you figure that out? Yeah. Well, first, I mean, I appreciate your acknowledging that we've increased um, our share. And I think that's actually quite important. You know, it's not a leading indicator of particularly anything. It's more of a trailing indicator. You do good things for your riders. You do good things for your drivers your share should increase. And ours has gone from 26 to 27 to 28 to 29 to 30. We're actually about, just above 31 if you look at some of the public data now. And that's over a fairly short period of time. It may not sound like a lot, but actually, honestly, it is a fairly significant move over such a short period of time. You know, Pepsi would kill for that kind of share gain versus Coke over any reasonable period of time. So anyway, on the one hand, pleased with what's happening because it shows that we're doing the right thing for riders and drivers. On the other hand, 
data point, still got a long way to go. And I think the way, at least I think about it, is the first thing you have to do is get the basics right. But then you have to remind people why it's important that Lyft exists. And I'll give you a couple of ways to think about it. I think at the most basic level, you as a rider want to have two apps on your phone. You want two rideshare companies to exist. Because guess what? One of us is sometimes going to let you down. I hope it's never us, but it's going to happen. And so you're better off having two in the marketplace, actively competing with each other. So you get out of the movies and for whatever reason, one guy takes a long time, one guy's short, or one guy's prices are high, the other guy's whatever it is. Okay. Just think about that for a second. If everybody had two apps and if prices were more or less the same and we were competing in other ways, but let's set that aside for just a second, we'd have 50% market share. Now we're not there because a lot of people don't have two apps. You kind of alluded to one reason before Uber's done a nice job with their Uber Eats. And so that's the thing. It has some problems to it too, but let's, uh, let's, let's give them a little credit. But, but, um, but anyway, so, so to start with, you kind of do the basics, right? Maybe you get to 50, 50, just that way. No, but probably not. You probably have to remind people that you exist. You probably have to do a little bit of marketing. And so, you know, if you've you know been on TikTok recently, you might've seen some of the TikTok ads we've started to play around with. I've been on social, you've been on Twitter, been on threads. Um, you see some of the, I think our social guys are having a great, great time right now, having a yeah, lot of fun. Bonkers on, threads. on threads, but yeah. you know, this is, this is kind then of Barbie found a, uh, Someone named Uber who can't use the Uber app and you've like threaded with them. <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. There's a family whose name was, is Uber. <laughs> they're like so, banned from Uber because Uber thinks they're imposters or something. They thought they're exactly some scammers. You know, yeah. Uber. So they, they get like, they try to sign up for Uber yeah. and they get this thing called like invalid. They're like, okay, right. actually you're not invalid. Your name just happens to be Uber. So anyway, yeah, we so find exactly our social marketing. media guys found them and it's kind of hilarious. We gave them a gift certificate, another, you know, pink customers fly. So you start to do that kind right. of thing. You start to remind people that, that you kind of want to companies out there you know, kind of, kind of fighting for, for business a little bit. And then and here's where I'll end on this point. You know, uh, I drive for Lyft as well. And so when I drive for Lyft, of course, the first question out of my mouth is why did you choose Lyft? And I am so happy to report the number of people who say, you know what? I like Lyft better. You yeah. guys have values that align with mine. You're a friendlier company. You treat your drivers better. We have evidence to back these things up, by the way. I think we are a friendly company. We definitely treat our drivers well. So anyway, little by little, you start to differentiate yourself as a brand, as a, as a, as a service provider, because we you know, create new services. And, and that's kind of how these things go. You going to do carpools again? Uh, no. Not, I, well, uh, <laughs> easy question, a hard answer. First, so never say never, right? Sure. And, and in fact... We do a limited amount of carpooling type stuff, uh, particularly around universities and some other particular settings where, where um, that makes sense. But broadly speaking, I don't think, I think it's a great example of a company getting it wrong. Hmm. And here's what I mean by that. Let's step back for a second. As a, as a rider, you want options, right? You want two apps maybe, but even within an app, you maybe want a way to save a little money sometimes versus, uh, you know, versus not. And all of us, everyone likes the deal. So uh, you have two different companies here. You've got Uber and Lyft. Let me describe the approaches. On the Uber side, they have this thing, which is kind of a carpooling type feature. Um, it kind of works like this. You, you know, ask for a ride. Carpooling picks you up. You start on your way. And then instead of going from point A to point B, all of a sudden point C kind of inserts itself because you got to take a left turn to pick up another rider. And then point D inserts itself because you got to drop off that other rider. And then finally you get to point E, which obviously is where you wanted to go in the first place, but you it imagine. took you longer. And yeah. in the meanwhile, you're kind of going left to right in a strange way. You don't really like it as a driver, excuse me, as a rider, because it's sort of frustrating. You save more money, but it's kind of like, Argh. and then drivers don't really like it either. Every, every time they do another pickup and drop off, it's kind of a, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a little annoying. So anyway, that's, the, but that's how they solve that problem. And they're very proud of it. And I'm excited that they're proud of it because I think it's a credit experience. What have we done? We've done something called wait and save. Very simple. If you're willing to wait a little bit longer, have a little bit wider window on when the car picks you up, you save two bucks, five bucks, 10 bucks, whatever it is, depending on the length of the trip. Very straightforward. And we have found that we're, so about 30% of our rides are wait and save rides. That's a very big number. And what that suggests is customers really like it. 
back when we did shared, because we were actually the ones who pioneered that one, I think we got up to maybe 15%, maybe something mm. like that, because people didn't really like it. And then COVID came and nobody liked it. So, but it's a great example right. of two different companies. So, and I, maybe we'll get it right someday. I don't know. Who knows? But I know this. It's cool to have two companies trying to focus on the same problem. And at least in my view, one solving it in a customer-focused way and one solving it in a non-customer-focused way. Yeah. So what is the focus? You're focusing on ride-sharing. Um, what does that mean for biking? I mean, I'm a user of City Bike. I use it with the Lyft app in New York. And I'm sure when I'm in San Francisco next week, I'll be doing the Lyft, uh, Lyft bike there. Um, yeah. Is that something you're still committed to? Yeah. So uh, first thing I have you to say use is it too. I, yeah. I use it almost every day. I, in fact, I just used it 15 minutes ago to get to work this morning. Yeah, I, I, look, I think biking is the future in a lot of ways. I mean, not for everybody, of course, but it's good for cities because it's, you know, it's greener, it's less polluting. It's a new mode of transportation that, in fact, often is faster than cars if you've got, you know, gridlock and parts and so on and so forth. It's good for you, you know, and healthy, gets you out. It's fun, particularly on e-bikes. You know, anyone who takes an e-bike, you know, they immediately tell 10 different people how awesome e-bikes are. Yeah, those things are too fast. But anyway. <laughs> well, it depends. It depends. Yeah, you have to get used to it. You, you, you have do. to get used to it. It's like a uh, mini motorcycle. <laughs> well, it's not as fast as a motorcycle. But anyway, um, so look, so bikes are awesome. Now, and, and city bike, you mentioned city bike. I mean, just to give you a sense of the scale of that, we give over 100,000 city bike rides a day, a mm-hmm. day in New York City. That's a big deal. That, if you just look at that as a public transportation network, it's like that's it's like the thirtieth biggest transportation network in the world, or something like that. So it's it's just in New York City. It's huge, and you see bike lanes everywhere and all all the stuff. So all that is all this great. Um, we look at our bike business very important to our customers, important to cities, important to the future of the planet, important to everything. But for us, we're also trying to think pretty carefully about how we can really give it the um, the energy and focus it needs, considering that we're really focused on rideshare. And so it's an active conversation internally, and I'll just sort of leave it there. But we're super committed to the mode of transportation for sure. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned that you you drive. Yeah. You know, I think that's good. Dara um, from Uber just like had this big, I mean, we've talked about it on the pod, but had this big splashy profile in the Wall Street Journal talking about he's finally driving six years onto the job. Maybe we'll talk about that in the second half. But I mean, I think it is a, a moment that we should pause and talk a little bit about driver safety. So there was a story out of um, Washington, D.C. It's a very tragic story. Uh, Nasr Ahmed Yar, he's 31, he was 31 years old. He was a translator for the U.S. Army in Afghanistan and moved to the U.S. to escape Taliban violence. Uh, he was shot and killed um, in D.C. I don't know if, if maybe you have uh, some information. Was he on the on the clock? And I don't think these were passengers or not, but. I don't know if you've commented on this publicly before. I'm, I'm curious if you could share your, your perspective and, and your thoughts here. I mean, well, my, my big perspective on him is it's an incredibly tragic situation. Awful. I mean, absolutely awful. Um, he had driven for Lyft. It wasn't, he wasn't actually a Lyft driver at that moment, but he'd driven mm. for Lyft. And it's absolutely, it's, it's, it's absolutely awful I and mean, unacceptable. Have maybe a long conversation about gun safety and so forth and right. so on, but that's a distraction. It's just absolutely awful. Um, Look, driver safety is is super important. And of course, you'd expect the CEO of Lyft to say that, but it's really true. It's really true. It's actually an area where drivers and riders have exactly the same uh, perspective. You know, they, they both want a safe ride. And we invest an enormous amount, an enormous amount into safety, both for riders and drivers. I'll give you a couple of examples. In every car, there are two people in every car. <laughs> there are two people in every car. And they both matter exactly the same amount. So the yeah, exactly the same. We have to take care of them both. We have to give them both a great experience. Talk about from the rider experience, just because that's probably familiar, more familiar to most of your listeners. From a rider perspective, we will do things, and you might have gotten this yourself, where we will, of course, we've added in you know safety features like you know you can alert us if something's going wrong during a ride. You can get a response from ADT. Um, they will call nine one one for you. They will they will leap into action. And this has happened. I've seen what happens when 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 this is luck. It's very rare, but you know this. That's the extreme case. Um, there are many other cases that are much less extreme. You know, you feel uncomfortable and, and, and you're, of course, allowed and encouraged to report that information and there's never any retribution for any of that. So we spend a lot of energy making sure our riders feel um, safe. You even, and perhaps you've gotten this notification, if it um, takes you longer than we expect to get to your destination or if it looks like you're going way off route, you know, we'll send you an alert saying, are you okay? We want to make sure everything is okay. So yeah, very, I have very gotten that. Possible. It's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a it's a, a real focus. And then on drivers, we do a lot of upfront work, making sure that we give them um, uh, information 
about how to anticipate potentially, you know, what could be a difficult situation. Of course, all of our drivers themselves go through background checks and so on and so on and so forth. But, you know, you know, crazy things can happen and sometimes terrible, terrible, tragic things can happen. And so all I can say is just, it's an area of, of just massive and ongoing uh, focus for us to try to figure out how to create a safe experience as we can. David Risher is here with us. He's the CEO of Lyft doing his first podcast interview since taking over. We'll be back right after this. I'm Jesse Hempel, host of Hello Monday. In my 20s, I knew what I wanted for my career. But from where I am now in the middle of my life, nothing feels as certain. Work's changing, we're changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of any of it. So every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. We talk about making career pivots, about purpose and how to discern it, about where happiness fits into the mix and how to ask for more money. Come join us in the Hello Monday community. Let's figure out the future together. Listen to Hello Monday with Jesse Hempel wherever you get your podcasts. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back here on Big Technology Podcast with David Risher. He's the CEO of Lyft. And you were also employed like 37 at Amazon? <laughs> I was. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm kind of curious. What you, You've definitely employed some Jeff Bezos-isms at, uh, at Lyft. You have the David at email, similar to how um, it's David at Lyft, right? Um, similar right. to how Jeff Bezos has, has, I think he still has Jeff at Amazon.com. And he actually reads those. What, what sort of Amazon leadership lessons are you putting into place inside Lyft? By the way, the idea of like, it's so interesting because Lyft is this, you know, kind of viewed as this kind of um, warm and fuzzy culture and Amazon, you know, public imagination is the opposite. So it is kind of interesting seeing the two meld in some way. Go ahead. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting observation. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I learned so much from Jeff, so much from Jeff. And, and uh, but, but the single biggest thing, was if you obsessively focus on your customers, and again, we have riders and drivers as ours, you will build a great business. And, and, and it's, it's, it's almost, you know, just like the sun will come up tomorrow morning. You know, you have to work at it. It doesn't come automatically, but, 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 it, but it will happen. Um, single biggest thing for sure. And, and, but that's so easy to say and yet really hard to pull off day after day after day. And I'm actually, I'm glad you, you bring up my email address. Yeah, it's david at lift.com. And I read those. You know, I'm not the only one who reads those, to be honest. I have other mm-hmm. people who also help me out trying to sort of sort through. Um, and I, it's one of the first things I do every single morning. Uh, my staff knows this because shortly after I wake up, I read them. And then shortly after that, they sometimes get messages that, um, that have questions. So Je- Jeff Bezos used to send those, forward them with question marks when he didn't like what he was seeing. <laughs> do you yeah. do the same thing? I don't, I don't, I've read that. I've, I've never been on the receiving you end. You never got a question mark, mark email? Hmm. No, that sounds pretty scary to me. Yeah. No, I, I don't do that. No, but, but I will sometimes say kind of like, you know, kind of what's going on here. Like this right. doesn't sound right to me. Um, I'll tell you, I'll give you an example just from last night. Last night, someone uh, found me, I actually got contact with me in a different way on social media. And they described with such clarity what was going on. Uh, it was very frustrating. They were a driver who was very frustrated uh, about a certain set of things. And uh, I responded to him. And he within, I even have his, uh, it's probably, I probably, I'm not sure that this is okay to do, but we'll see if we can do this kind of in real time yeah, here. Maybe some I can, of these maybe emails that you're getting. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'll, I'll uh, <laughs> oh, you know what? It's going to take me a second to find this. But anyway, he, he responded to me within, so I responded quite quickly. And he said, just the fact that you responded means so much to me. That's all he said. And because and, he, he has identified some issues, which we're going to look into. But in a certain sense, it starts with just being willing to listen and just being willing to act on that, not just sort of have it go into some, you know, some, some filter system. So anyway, that's a, that's a starting point. But it's not the ending point. The ending point is you've got to really have empathy. You've got to really put yourself in the shoes of customers. And you have to figure out a way to make sure that the whole organization is doing the same. And, and here I'm just going to quote Jeff. I mean, Jeff talks about 
three types of companies, the ones that are customer focused, the ones that are product focused, the ones that are competitor focused. And as he says, all three can be successful. All three can be successful. There's no necessarily right or wrong answer, but at least in his view, and I've come to appreciate this view, if you got to choose one, choose the customer way. And that's how I, that's how I run the business. Yeah. And so Jeff uh, Bezos also had his senior leadership team, the S team. You have your own senior leadership. You have like a, a fun name for it. It's like the supernova of supporting, you know, superstars. <laughs> what is it? Talk, talk about how not, you run this. That's, that's not us. That's somebody else. I think, uh, so we actually, it's funny to say that we actually are just renaming it. We just renamed it a couple of days ago. It's called the PDT, Purpose Driven Team. Right. And the reason we call it the Purpose Driven Team is, we, you know, I, I mentioned quickly in the first half of the pod, this idea that an organization has to have a reason, has to have a why. And, and you know, we have a why in our name. So I guess in some ways that comes for free, but we have to have a why, W-H-Y. And our why, bigger than just building a profitable business, bigger than building a business that's great for our shareholders and employees and so on and so forth, all those things matter. But really our why has to do with bringing people together. And I want to riff on this for just a second, if you'll indulge me. There are so many things in our daily lives, so many mechanisms that keep us on the couch, watching a movie at home, eating pizza alone, to sound a little tragic about it, um, divided as a country. So from the biggest to the smallest, um, uh, on our phones, loving Twitter, sure, maybe not so much anymore, loving threads because it's kind of fun, whatever it might be, whatever it might be, so many temptations to interact directly with, with, with technology. But Lyft isn't that. Lyft is not that. There's no interest in just interacting with technology when it comes to it. It's about getting you out. You got to get out. You got to get out to see your friends. You got to get out to see, to go to work. You got to go to take a trip, whatever it is. You got to go pick up your mom, whatever it might be. And so, and that, and in some ways, there's a quote that I'm kind of falling in love with, which is, what if the next social app is Lyft? And Think about that, because that's what we really, really want. We want people out. We want people out. We want people connected. I think it's a society I'm talking about. I'm talking about just left. So I see that as a very, very important role we play in the world. And um, anyway, I'll just kind of stop there. Yeah. There's a couple more things I definitely want to get to before we go. So pardon the harsh transition, but artificial intelligence is sort of animating the tech sector right now. And it seems to be that, you know, there's a lot of talk about it. People are buying a ton of GPUs. Um, and this is pushing up the stock of like seven companies, which we talked about in the first half. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the rest of the tech industry is like, huh? And I'm curious, like you're you're a CEO of a public tech company. It'd be great to have your your thought on this one. And like, am I am I alone in thinking that, you know, we, we still need to see products from these companies? Um, especially, I mean, I'm, I'm also in particular curious how you think Amazon is going to handle this. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask about the Amazon question. I can speculate, but I can tell you that That's good. it we is like speculation changer. here. We encourage <laughs> and it usually doesn't stop me. So anyway, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll get there, but <laughs> no, look, it, it's a game changer. It is. And the, you know, again, the hype cycle is a little nuts and you know, that, that's, you know, discount that by a little bit, but we've used artificial intelligence. You sort of, uh, let's say it used to be called machine learning now, but for a long, right. long time. But this is and, and you can, about generative AI. And that's, that's exactly so. That's also. the big new thing. Generative AI is the big new thing. And oh my God, we see it all the time. We see it as a way, of course, just to start with the absolute basics to help our engineers be more productive because mm-hmm. it kind of kind of help them write okay. code more let, efficiently. Let me ask you about that. I, yeah. I, you know, I just want to sorry to interrupt you, but Not at all. this GitHub, you know, the co-pilots out there. Yeah. Every CEO yeah. I speak with say, "Yeah, we're doing it." And then I say, yeah. "Have you seen the productivity increase yet?" And they're like, mm, "Still looking for it." <laughs> is that? Is that? Yeah. Do, are you there? Uh, here's no. And I, but I think I know why, because so, right. So I was talking to an engineer just yesterday on this and he said, you know, it's probably saving me about a half an hour a day of menial work, menial work. And that's the very important part, by the way. It's not just a half an hour a day. It's the stuff that he didn't wake up getting excited to do. And now something else does it for him. But I will tell you, I suspect that half hour is somewhat offset by playing around and goofing around and trying to figure out what's going on, you know, and how does it work and so forth and so on. So, you know, there's, there's often, I'd say a J curve of these things, right? Things get less productive before more. I don't know right now. It's probably more like 50, 50. In other words, for every minute you spend goofing around, you get a minute of productivity back something, but you're not going to see massive productivity gains in the short term. What you will see though, are developers, engineers, hopefully, hopefully saying, 
I'm able to spend my same X hours a day doing stuff that I enjoy more, having a better time and having higher quality results. A lot of the stuff that's getting done now around using AI for engineers, aside from kind of completing lines of code and so forth, is test suites, right? And testing, some people love it. A lot of people don't love it so much. But over time, if you get better testing, you have higher quality. So I think the quality will improve faster than productivity. I think productivity will, will follow. But let me move beyond that, because I think that's just sort of a starting point. And it's a little bit technical. The, the way we've traditionally used ML, machine learning, inside is driver, rider, matching, right? Millions of drivers, millions of riders, and lots of data, right? Oh, road gets closed. How do we think about that? Well, we can use AI to sort of predict or to kind of see patterns and say, oh, that road probably gets closed, so let's route people around it. That's you know, kind of basic stuff. It, but it's hard, but it's kind of basic. But now come to a world where you as a rider have a problem. You know, um, I lost my iPhone. Oh my God. Right now, like, terrible, it's terrible. It's the worst. It's a terrible feeling. You almost feel like you're, you're naked. Um, so, and right now, honestly, it takes us a little bit too long to kind of deal with it. It's hard for everybody. I mean, you don't necessarily have a way to get in contact with us because your phone isn't there. Then your phone's moved around the city because it's in a car and all this sort of stuff. But we can look at that and we can use some fairly trivial, honestly, but still requiring a little bit of sophistication, algorithms to try to sort of detect that maybe even before you know it. Because typically, if you get out of the car and your phone stays in the car, something strange has happened. It's sort of obvious. Mm -hmm. So that's a, a sort of way. A lot of customer service really can be improved with AI, not just cost out and all that sort of stuff people think about, but you literally can get a faster, better response, you know, um, using AI. And then for drivers, I think there's so many interesting opportunities for us to figure out a way to help drivers figure out, for example, how to make more money, right? Drivers want to make more money. And uh, by the way, this is a little bit of a side brag, but you know, our driver earnings are up about 10% since we started to roll out some new features recently because um, we, we really do want our drivers to make more money. There's a cap. I mean, obviously they can't take all the money, otherwise we get none of the money. But anyway, we want them to make more money. AI can help. It can help by giving them, gosh, we've looked at what you do here. Um, Here's some times of day that you might want to drive based on your patterns that you seem to like to drive around this time of day. But if you've driven on Tuesday instead of Wednesday, you might have made a little bit more money. Uh, safety too, right? We can start to try to figure out ways to say, and we already do this to a certain extent, gosh, your driving is a little bit more aggressive than some people's. And so you might like that style, but I'm here to tell you, you know, you're actually putting yourself in a little bit of uh, vehicular danger when you do that. Right. So I think there's so many ways. Yeah. Okay. We have just a few minutes left. I have three questions for you. So let's see sure. if we can lightning around our way through the end here. Yeah. Uh, let me get the actual stat because I want to talk to you about executive compensation. So uh, your counterpart at Uber, Derek Oshisawi, uh, made $24 million last year and Uber stock fell 40% last year. Should Dara make less money and how do you? How much money do you make? And do you think that's fair? <laughs> okay, <laughs> a lot packed into that. That's a hard lightning round. I'll say this, I, Andrew, whether you should make more or less money, that's... Um, you know, the, the, their, their board can figure that out. Here's what I know. My compensation is 90 plus percent, 98%, I don't know, um, tied to our stock performance. And that was a conversation I had with the board when I took the job. Mm -hmm. I said, I don't really want stock that kind of vests over time, independent of how I do, uh, or shares that are given to me independent of how the company does. That to me doesn't seem right. What I do think is appropriate for CEOs is to have my stock very, very tightly, tightly tied to company performance. And so as our stock goes up, more shares get released. If our stock doesn't go up at all, I get paid just to pay salary. Okay. I think that's a good system. That's better than the other one. I can, I can comment on it. It's not a problem. <laughs> go for it. Yeah. I saw on Twitter, there was someone saying massive scam going on with city bike that there are teens that are scratching out and removing numbers on the e-bikes so they can have a permanent hold on the bikes, basically allow it to reserve but you can reserve it so no one else can scan them or get the number. Are you aware of this? What do you think about it? Uh, yeah, yeah. And we're stopping it. How? Um, I, I don't want to go into details, but yeah, no, for sure. It, it's super annoying. I, one of the things that is quite irritating to me personally is, you know, this is this is property that is mm -hmm. you know, literally like there for public use. And then, yeah, some people occasionally figure out ways to steal these things. And stealing doesn't work for me. I don't think it's a good idea. So we're going to stop it. Okay. All right, eager to see what happens there. I've seen it on my local one also. So raising my hand too, saying this is an issue. Um, okay. The last one is I asked people on threads and Twitter, uh, you know, what I should be asking about ride hailing. And we had some person say, I'm just going to quote him, Brian Morrissey, who writes the rebooting, friend of the program. He goes, why did they lie about how far the car, far away the car is? So 
<laughs> I think that's a little bit harsh, but I have had situations where like, you know, I've even, even this past weekend, I was like in a kind of a remote part of New York and, you know, request a lift. It says it's going to be there. You know, we'll find you a car within eight, eight minutes or whatever. And it never shows up. So, you know, what's going on there? Yeah. So it, it, so we don't lie. <laughs> we tell the truth as we yeah. know it. Sometimes things happen, right? Traffic happens, traffic jam happens, whatever, whatever. Um, the case you're talking about, um, it's very, very frustrating. You know, you have to remember that when you push that button, we're starting, we start immediately to look at who can pick you up the fastest. But it's not entirely our decision, right? We put it out there. We make a good guess of how, think, how fast we think you're going to match with the driver. But drivers can say yes or no. And if several drivers say no, then we have to do a certain set of things that try to figure out ways to you know, broaden the circle to more people and so on and so on and so forth. And sometimes we get it wrong. We try to be as accurate as possible. It serves nobody, nobody for us to be inaccurate. So no, no incentive at all for us to get that one wrong. You, you, you might think we have, nah, it's not. It right. just pisses you off and you won't drive with, or ride with us again. So that's bad. Uh, but we have work to do and we do it every day to try to make those estimates better and try to give drivers fewer reasons to say no, um, because that ultimately is what's driving that problem. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I think just as a user, piece of feedback is, it would be great to have a notification that says like you might be in a lift desert. I know that's probably counterproductive to what you guys are trying to do, but I think that would be, you know, it gives you an opportunity to more quickly look for another means of transportation as opposed to holding the app open as your battery goes down and praying that someone will accept your ride. It's a good suggestion. Just a thought. Yeah, I like that. David Richard, thanks so much for joining. It has been a ton of fun, Alex. Thanks for the questions. Even the, even the harsh and probing ones were fun. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, well, thanks for doing your homework too. Was, of course. The questions were great. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you rolling with all of them. And uh, hopefully we can make this a recurring thing. We'd love to have you back. I look forward to it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, David, for being here. Thank you, Nate Glottony, for handling our audio. Lyft, I'm not Lyft, Lyft for making this happen. LinkedIn for having me as part of your podcast network. And most of all, to all of you, the listeners, appreciate you being here week after week. We'll see you on Friday for another show where we break down the news and we'll see you next time on Big Technology Podcast. Podcast.